0: Borealis Entertainment Presents, Get Lost So You Can Find Your Way Home, a podcast and a memoir by M.K. Lott. So in this episode, we're going to be back at it with the next seven films that I'm sharing with you guys with the hopes of sharing a new story or a new film that could be of potential interest to you. And by the way, if you do want to watch these movies, I'm pretty sure all of the movies that I'm recommending were on Amazon Prime, HBO Max, or YouTube. And a big bonus, if you can find them on YouTube, as long as you don't mind ads, they're totally free. So you don't have to spend a dime on any of this. Uh, Assuming you already have Amazon Prime and HBO Max. But we're gonna get started with the best years of our lives. And I'm gonna level with you all, this movie is heartbreaking but it's fantastic. I talked a little bit last week about The Great Escape and how they didn't really shy away from telling the story how it was, despite using some of the outdated trends you saw in those days that seemed to, at least for me, take you out of the intensity of the story compared to modern day war films. And The Best Years of Our Lives is like that, but it's more impactful because it's technically not a war film. It shows a part of war which isn't really highlighted in other war films, especially not for the entirety of the film. And I would assume this was like revolutionary for the time. But the story follows three World War II soldiers who come back home and they have to deal with their traumas that they carried with them to home. So for example, one has horrible nightmares and can't get a good job for himself, so he goes back to Working at the convenience store that he worked at before the war. One became a pretty raging alcoholic and he still has to be like a really responsible banker. And One lost both of his hands and he tries to prove that nothing's changed even though clearly he can't really be sustainable for himself. And I think this film started a dialogue that hadn't been mentioned or brought up before. And I think The Best Years of Our Lives it doesn't in a way that not a lot of films do today. It's talking about how war doesn't end for the soldier when they're home and still gives respect to the soldiers and for what they had done and basically how there's like this disconnection between a soldier and the everyman even if the soldier and the everyman grew up together. I haven't done a lot of research on this production, but I hope I'm correct in saying that this film deserves to be credited as the film that started this conversation. And yes, there were other films that did this, like the, the biggest example that comes to mind is The Deer Hunter, which is one of my favorite movies of all time, but this was really like the trendsetter for it. And I think for that reason, this easily became a front runner for my favorite movie this month. And I think this is a movie that I would recommend to anyone because I think it's aged enough to where it's not as, you know, intense or uh, maybe even graphic for when it was at the time, but this is a movie that I would recommend to people because it was both entertaining and I think important to share, which to me makes a perfect film. Perfect being subjective, of course. (laughs) And the next film that I saw after this was called Pretending I'm a Superman. And if you're like me, you see this on the Amazon Prime feed and you think it's a film about the band Goldfinger or something. But Pretending I'm a Superman is actually a documentary about the video game Tony Hawk's Pro Skater and how it changed and influenced skater culture forever and I always knew this game as the game that I would play with my uncle when he had a spare controller, and I would just keep biffing it every time. But it's a film that I would demonstrate as an example of why documentaries are important. And typically, I see documentaries as, like, the persuasive essays of cinema. So I'm a little hesitant when I see one, because I just think, all right, what's the agenda? And usually when I think of movies like that, I think of, like, forks over knives or food ink or blackfish or anything made by michael moore i think that's his name because he did bowling for columbine but there's like there's a very clear intention behind it right it makes you want to feel something and potentially contribute to a cause that you may not have even cared or even wanted to contribute beforehand right And with this one, don't get me wrong, there was an agenda, but the agenda was celebrating something that created a community that would have otherwise been just a fad. Like I think a couple of interviewees in that, uh, including Tony Hawk himself, had said that skater culture was very much underground. Like it was the underground of the underground before Pro Skater came out. And then when Pro Skater came out, it made the culture thrive. And I think in that, pretending I'm a Superman is worth a watch to understand and to even celebrate a culture that you would have never known existed, especially from that generation. And the next film I watched was El Mariachi. And this was kind of one that got away from me because as I had mentioned in the last episode, there was a tradition that my uncle and I started in college of watching movies every Monday night, and El Mariachi was going to be one of those movies, but we weren't able to access it. Now, that's a different story, and I can definitely see why this was a must watch for my uncle. El Mariachi is not a glamorous movie by any means, but I think it hits differently, especially for where I'm at in my life right now, just speaking of personal experience because I've been slowly discovering how much you can actually do when you have so little. And this film is the quintessential definition of that, being able to do a lot with very little. And I would say this was like the Blair Witch Project of Mexican shootouts. And it jump-started Robert Rodriguez's career, which if we didn't have this film, We wouldn't have films like Planet Terror, or Sin City, or From Dusk Till Dawn, or Spy Kids, if you're of that generation like me, or the next film on this list, but I absolutely loved it. For what it had, it was brilliantly shot, the shootout scenes were great, and for being amateur actors, it was a pretty well-immersed cast. And yeah, there were like some cheesy scenes and not a lot of scenes that worked, but at the end of the day, this is a film that was made with no budget basically and pure passion. and there's so much admiration to be had I think, for watching a project like this because I think I think the budget literally was around $5,000. And to put in perspective, a cheap movie is one million dollars. So I, I'm not kidding when I say like they literally, had no budget this was like the kind of film that people shoot on the weekends and they ask for favor from friends to appear in the movie and to hold the camera like it was that kind of production and I would just say if you're wanting to like kind of figure out the vibe of this movie if you want to watch it or not if I was a film professor I would show this to my like top performing students just to say Don't worry about being the next Spielberg or the next whoever is on your list. Just make the things you want to see in the world. That's kind of the vibe of El Mariachi. And the next film was Desperado. And this film is the perfect answer for why you should make those things that you want to make even if you have nothing, like El Mariachi. Desperado is about a mariachi singer Who goes from bar to bar looking to avenge his love with a guitar case full of guns and grenades and if that sounds like i got my premises mixed up i get it but i didn't desperado is actually the sequel to el mariachi and it was made because people saw el mariachi and said you know what let's see what this rodriguez kid can do with a bigger budget so he got a hollywood production he got a hollywood budget He got a Hollywood cast, which included Antonio Banderas, Salma Hayek, Steve Buscemi, Jijin Chong, and Danny Trejo, and he made the movie that he originally wanted to make. Now that I'm thinking about it, another really good example of that is Mad Max being made with no budget, but being so good that it got George Miller to make The Road Warrior, which is usually the Mad Max movie that everybody thinks of. And I mean, hell, Robert Rodriguez even got Quentin Tarantino to do a cameo and to perform one of the funniest bar stories you'll ever hear and this film was the more publicly accessible of the two films obviously because it had the bigger capacity to be marketed although there is a third film that I haven't seen yet called once upon a time in Mexico but usually this one is kind of regarded as Robert Rodriguez's best film and I would agree with that statement. I haven't seen all of his filmography, but I would agree with that statement. This is the movie I would take my buddies to see in theaters with the sound system at its loudest. We can just have a good time and have fun without feeling like we have to digest every single thing in the frame or like this means that or you know, yada, yada, yada. And there's certainly a time and a place for that. Don't get me wrong, but it wouldn't be this film. And sometimes that's a good thing. The next film that I watched was Fire and Ice. And this one needs some context. So, the story itself isn't really mind blowing. It's two fantasy factions trying to defeat each other. One's ice and evil, and the other's of the earth and pro life, yada, yada, yada. But the thing that makes this film significant to me is the creator, Ralph Bakshi. Ralph Bakshi is kind of a pioneer in not just independent animation, but in adult animation. I don't mean adult as in pornographic, although you watch Fire and Ice, and there are some shots that will give you kind of a good eye roll once or twice, but I mean adult as in thematic, like not made for kids, but it's not necessarily explicit. And this guy paved the way for stuff like Adult Swim, Love, Death, and Robots, Heavy Metal, if you guys remember that 80s cartoon. And he brought about animators like Genndy Tartakovsky, who brought a Samurai Jack and Primal. But this is one of Bakshi's films that really paved the way for that, and is usually used as the example. And it was also a good example of an animation style called rotoscoping. So, for those who don't know, rotoscoping is kind of an animation where you record someone doing the movements and then you trace over that footage whatever character you want. And I guess it's kind of an ancestor to motion capture, but it's a big deal to me because it's a style that's not really done anymore, if at all, and it still has a sense of artistry that I think is still worthy of talking about. And if you don't want to watch Fire and Ice, I get it. But if you want another good example of rotoscoping, if you guys remember the Lord of the Rings cartoon, that was like the go-to movie for Lord of the Rings before the trilogy that like blew everyone away. that's another example of rotoscoping and it's made by the same guy. The next film on the list, I don't really have much to say about it, but the next film on the list is The Last Dragon. And this one is the right amount of 80s cheese. So, when you finish with Time Cop or you're looking for a good old time capsule to the good old days, this is probably going to be it. This movie is almost like The Karate Kid if Daniel was overly patient and a stickler for the rules and had to fight gang members. It's basically like like this black kid in I Think New York who is like a karate master. And he's getting terrorized by this local street gang, but he's basically like so zen he doesn't want to fight. So it's like him learning how to use his knowledge, essentially, and his martial arts to defend himself and the people that he loves and cares about. And the gang members in the film, again, 80s cheese, are basically like 90% shoulder pads, so they're awesome. <laughs> and I don't necessarily have a ton to say about that film, about this film, other than it's campy, it's very much attuned to a certain generation, but it's got a charm that you really don't know if a film will have until it comes out, which is kind of the magic of filmmaking. And I think in that regard, The Last Dragon is fun to watch because it's a little bit of a bigger budget than El Mariachi but it still kinda has like that independent, you know, we're all just here to have a good time and make a fun project kind of vibe. Which again, I think there is very much a need for those kind of films. So if you're looking for that, I would advise probably The Last Dragon if you're looking for something a little lighter. And then the final film I'm gonna be talking about for this episode is Elvis. And there's not much to say other than I loved Elvis. I love Baz Luhrmann as a director. His film, Moulin Rouge, is, it's been in my top three favorite movies of all time since I was like 14. I love Austin Butler as an actor. I love Tom Hanks as an actor, simply because I've never met these people before in my life so I can't say one or the other. But I remember when the movie ended, I had this insane, overwhelming feeling of fear. And it was because of Elvis feeling like, even though he was one of, if not the most successful musician who ever lived, I'm sure that's true if we adjust inflation, but he still never felt like he accomplished the things that he wanted to. And to me, the older I get, the more that becomes one of my biggest fears. Probably more than death on some days. So I think this movie really tapped into that fear, in a way that never has before. But I kept thinking about that, like days after I finished the movie, and I realized that's why we need stories. We need art and design and narratives and media that can move us like this. And then our job is to do something about it. So I think it's safe to say that Elvis pleasantly surprised me. It's a narrative that I've heard and I've seen over and over again, but somehow it still felt fresh and it still had a really profound impact on me. And that I think is a really beautiful thing to pull off. And now, thank you all so much for listening to this episode of Get Lost So You Can Find Your Way Home. I hope this episode leaves you with some good recommendations that fit your taste or could broaden your horizons. And be sure to tune in next week for the next batch. Thank you as always, and until next time, here's to finding your way.